You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. People should have the ability to push back against stuff that's not true, push back against stuff that's not fair, but the average person doesn't know how to do that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's got an interview with Craig Silverman from BuzzFeed about organizations that do online reputation management. And we are back. Joe, I'm going to kick things off for us this week. Uh, My story comes from the Arizona Central News Organization. Mm -hmm. They're part of USA Today. And it's from reporter Jeanette Hinkle. Ah, hi, Jeanette. (laughs) The story is titled, How Four IT Technicians Saved an Arizona Hospital from Hacker Ransomware. Awesome. So it starts off with a gentleman named Mike Nelson. He's an IT guy working at a local hospital, Wickenburg Community Hospital. Uh, small community, about 8,000 residents. Mm-hmm. And this is a nonprofit community hospital. Uh, he came in one morning to work, uh, fired up his computer, and there in the middle of the screen was the word Ryuk. Ryuk. Ryuk, R-Y-U-K. I am familiar with this word from the uh, reporting we do over on the CyberWire. Okay. And this is not a word you want to see on your computer. Ah. This is uh, the name of a strain of ransomware. Ah, okay. Sure enough, the hospital's computers had been hit with ransomware. Oh, my gosh. They suspect that they'd been uh, hit through a phishing email. Probably. But uh, they weren't sure. They still haven't been able to track it down. So they had a decision to make what to do about this ransomware. First thing they did was they did a little research about what this ransomware was, how bad it was. And most of the asks when it comes to Ryuk were about half a million dollars in Bitcoin. Huh. And they quickly decided that they didn't have that kind of money. Right. They probably don't have that kind of money laying around for any purpose, let alone paying a ransom. Right. Small community hospital. They just couldn't pay that kind of ransom. Right. So they started over. Gentlemen said, uh, we threw the computer in the trash and started over from a software perspective. We sat down and decided what is most important, what was absolutely needed, both short-term and long-term. And when I say short-term, I mean in the next hour, Right. and long-term is the next 12 hours. <laughs> okay. These are different time horizons than I would consider short-term and long-term. I suppose, yeah, well, but, I suppose when you're in a hospital situation. But yeah, exactly. When you're in a hospital situation, I guess those are your time horizons. Those don't seem unreasonable. He said that one of the lucky things was that none of the patient care systems were affected by the attack. That's very good. Yeah. So it was the administrative things, billing, stuff like that. So they were fortunate that they had backups on tape. Now, what does this mean, Joe? When when you back stuff up on tape, what's going on here? Well, actually, it means that there's a magnetic tape, you know, like the old cassette tapes that you and I used to listen to music on in our cars. <laughs> used to watch movies on of VHS right. tapes. It's yeah. the same yeah. kind of tape, except it's designed and there are devices that will write your computer data to this tape. It is a very slow way to get your data back in terms of like if you need access to something right away, it's mm-hmm. not going to be available right away. But it is a very cost effective and 
overall effective way of backing up your data. Right. And, and they said here that these tapes were actually stored in a safe ah. on site. And so there's something good about that because right. their backups were physically separate from the entire network. Correct. They were not just encrypted with everything else. Right. And that's a thing that these ransomware folks do is quite often they will look for the backups. They'll search around on the network if the backup systems or backup hard drives or whatever are connected to the same network, right. they'll search those out and, and look to encrypt those as well. Yeah. When you're doing failure planning, a lot of times you'll get vendors who say, why have a tape backup when you can just, for about the same amount of money, have an absolutely hot backup right here that's always on the network. And when your RAID array or whatever it is, your storage device goes down, you can just go right over to the backup and actually start accessing files. That can become your live file system. Just throw a switch. and That's right. And it's a great solution to eliminate downtime, but it is not a good solution when you're against an adversary who is looking to destroy your data. Mm -hmm. Because it is always available and always online and always being backed up and it's live, it's essentially just another file system. It's really not a backup in terms of malicious activity like particularly ransomware. So I suppose ideally you'd want to have both. Right. But of course, a situation like this, a community hospital, they have limited resources. Right. They had a grand total of four people working in IT. Correct. Hospital. So that's that's the way a lot of these organizations run is they don't have a lot of money for IT. But I'll say they allocated their money properly rather than going with a hot backup. They actually want something that could be stored offline and even off site. Yeah. The the story says that uh, they got hit by the ransomware on a Friday and the IT team worked around the clock all weekend long. And by Monday morning, most of the hospital was fully functioning again. Amazing. Yep. Well, so, well done. Yeah. Hats off to them. I think they learned some lessons. They said they did upgrade their systems so that they're still backing up to tape, but they have a faster tape backup system than they used to have. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I guess that's probably an important upgrade to make. It's working. You, your system worked. I'd like to know if they uh, if they had tested their system in the past. It kind of sounds like they have. If they got a, a slow, older tape backup system to restore all the data in a weekend, mm-hmm. it sounds like these guys have run through the drill before. Yeah, a lot of those old tape backup systems, I mean, they're built like tanks. Right, they are. They are, <laughs> they are designed. They are slow and steady and reliable, and but uh, just solid, yeah. solid. One of the other interesting things they mentioned in here was, in this article, was the possibility of putting honeypots in your network to attract the ransomware. What, what do, you, do you have thoughts on that? I think it's a, it's a great idea. A honeypot is basically just a computer that sits on the network that no one should ever access. And when somebody does access it, that should fire off an alarm. And it's called a honeypot because... You know, you catch more flies with honey. Right. Uh, it lures them in. Because one of the things these attackers are going to do once they get inside your network is they're going to look to spread laterally and then escalate their privileges. I see. So in the process of spreading laterally, they run the chance of going into a honeypot, even touching that honeypot in any way, shape, or form in terms of a network connection should set off some kind of alarm, even if they ping it. Because mm-hmm. your normal network traffic should absolutely never be talking to a honeypot. There's no reason for it to do that. But an attacker is going to see it and go, hey, what's that? And they're going to look at it. And even if they just look at it, that should be enough to trigger to say, hey, something's going on. I see. All right. Well, again, hats off to the folks at uh, Wickenburg Community Hospital. Sounds like they made the most of a bad situation. They had the right things in place. Yep. And they were able to recover in a timely manner. And uh, so it's a good, happy ending uh, in a difficult situation. Right. And thanks to Jeanette Hinkle from Arizona Central for the uh, reporting she did there. Joe, that's my story this week. What do you have for us? Dave, recently we have seen a new thing in malicious activity. It is fake exploitation, spam, 
and phishing emails. Mm. We've started, when I say recently, I mean within the past year or so. Right. And Lawrence Abrams over at Bleeping Computer has an article. We'll put a link in the show notes. The bad news in this article is that these kind of emails seem to be increasing. Mm. And Symantec warns that they are stopping more and more of these messages, which would indicate an increase in more of them going out. And the article has a really nice chart based on the data from Symantec. And there's a, a very clear trend upwards. And there's a huge spike in February of this year. Hmm. Which I suppose means they probably work. Right. They list a bunch of these different types of attacks. First, of course, we hear about the sextortion attack, right? Which is where hackers have a video of you while you've been visiting adult websites. Mm. They installed malware that filmed you. Send us money. These scams were remarkably effective when they first came out. They raked in $50,000. Mm. In some cases, however, these sextortion emails were sending out malware. Mm. So they had a link. So maybe, I don't know, there's not an example in the article, but maybe it's like, hey, here's a video of you looking at the porn site, click on this link, and then Bob's your uncle. You've got malware on right. you. It's a malicious right. site, right? <laughs> right. The next one, of course, is the hitman has been hired to kill you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've talked about this. Yeah. The bomb threat extortion scam has a real impact because you can't sit idly by when you get a bomb threat. Right. right? And, of course, panic ensues when that happens, and everybody has to evacuate the building. The police have to be called. And then, of course, it gets reported in the media. I don't know that anybody made payments to these. I hope nobody did. Yeah, that's a, a lot of, I guess, collateral damage from right. a bomb threat. Yeah. Right. I hope this one is not very productive. Here's one I like. The CIA investigation extortion email scams. We caught you with child porn on your computer, and I have all the evidence, and if you pay me... $10,000, I'll delete the evidence from you. Right. And that doesn't that one come from a CIA insider? Right. Yeah, CIA insider. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, the CIA doesn't do this kind of work. So, <laughs> But that doesn't stop people from trying to extort you using the CIA's moniker, right? Mm -hmm. Threats that you will be infected with WannaCry, DDoSed, or, and have information sent to the IRS. This is one campaign that they were talking about. It was relatively new. The attackers threatened to install WannaCry, which is ransomware. Yeah. Uh, they threatened to... DDoS your network, and they say they found some tax documents that the IRS would like to see. <laughs> Those are coming at you from multiple directions. Right. Pressing that fear button. Exactly. They're, they're trying to push all the fear buttons. And for a, the small price of two Bitcoins, this can all go away. Ah, right? very good. Mm -hmm. Right? This fake scam. Sex tape extortion. Okay. Now, this one harkens back to years ago when sex tapes were a big thing. You remember that? Everybody had a sex tape if you were anybody. Um. I'm familiar with it. Right. <laughs> the sender sends you an email saying, hey, you and I got busy years ago. I, okay. And I secretly recorded it. Oh. And when you went to the bathroom, I stole all your passwords. And now I have your contact list and your passwords, and I'm going to send this video to all your friends unless you give me money. Okay. Now, this is where being an old guy uh, who's been married for 25 years comes in handy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Because exactly. I would quickly recognize this as a scam. Threats that they will ruin your site's reputation. That means they're going to start spamming using your domain as a part of the email, mm, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to leave you negative reviews. They're going to submit nasty messages to other people's sites unless you pay approximately $2,400. I remember the the spamming with your domain name. I remember that being a thing back in the 90s right. where people would be, yeah, and, uh, and you, be spoofing your domain name. You could get black hold for that. Yes. You know, and yes. Th this is the one that's most plausible to me hmm. because this is something that's technically very easy to do. 
Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't require a lot to do. So if, if somebody pays $2,400, I don't do these things. If they don't pay $2,400, then I go ahead and I start spamming with their email. I start leaving negative reviews hmm. and I start submitting crazy things on competitor sites with that domain. This is actually not that challenging and very plausible, actually. Hmm. This might not be a fake scam. It might be real. Hmm. I still say don't pay the ransom. Right. What's interesting on this campaign that Bleeping Computer looked at, the scammers left a phone number. And they called the phone number, but it went straight to voicemail, oh. which is funny. Yeah. And finally, we have the U.S. state police extortion scams, right? And this is a scam pretending to be from some state police from some U.S. state, whatever. Mm-hmm. The example they have in the articles from Tennessee. And the email recipient has been involved in another child pornography investigation. And the person who's sending you the email is retiring and offering to delete the evidence for $2,000 hmm. in Bitcoin. I don't know about you, David. Another insider. Right. Yeah, another insider. (laughs) But I don't know very many police officers. But what I understand about police officers is when they get this kind of case, they don't have any mercy for the people that they're investigating. Yeah, that's Um, true. And it doesn't matter if you're retiring. I don't think that this is something anybody would do. It's very unlikely that somebody's going to, for $2,000, cover this up. Yeah. This is absolutely a scam. Well, and I suppose it's more the, it's the fear of the accusation. Right. The fear of the accusation, because it's a very serious accusation. Even the accusation can ruin your life. Right. Exactly. Most people, I would hazard to say that the overwhelming number of people who would receive this scam notification have had nothing to do with child pornography in their life. But so that's not the thing that scares them. Right. It's not that, oh, I actually did this. It's that I'm going to be accused of doing this. Right. That's another terrible scam that can have real impact. But, you know, if you get this scam email, Mm -hmm. just relax. Any of these scam emails, just relax, slow down. That's what we always say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And remember, generally speaking, law enforcement will never contact you when they're coming to arrest you. Right. They, <laughs> they, will, they will not do they will that. not give you a heads up. No. Correct. <laughs> All right. Well, it's an interesting list of stories, and uh, we will have a link in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from one of my CyberWire colleagues. His name ah. is Bennett. Ah. Uh, he came in my office recently, and he handed me a letter that had been sent to his mother via the Postal Service. A couple interesting things. It was sent from Canada, Canadian post mark on it. And sadly, uh, my colleague's mother actually passed away about two years ago. So these folks, I guess, have an outdated mailing list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, this is a letter and it goes like this. Private and confidential. Dear Miss Smith, I'm aware that this is certainly not a conventional way of approaching to establish a relationship of trust, but you will realize the need for my action. My name is Michael Burlington, an accounts manager with TD Canada Trust Bank. I retrieved your contact address in my search for the next of kin, or someone with the same last name to a deceased customer of our bank, Engineer James Smith, an engineer and co-owner of a private electrical company for 13 years. Unfortunately, this customer died intestate in a ghastly car crash, leaving his bank account with an open beneficiary status. All efforts made by our bank to locate his relatives have been unsuccessful, so I decided to write you as I have monitored this account in the bank for three years now, and no one has come forth with any claim. Before his death, he had an investment deposit with my bank totaling the sum of $47 million. Wow! Bank law states that after three years of dormancy, with no activity on an investment account and no claim by any family or heir, the money gets confiscated or reverted to the government treasury as unclaimed. 
I would like to present you to our bank as his next of kin to claim the money. This transaction is 100% risk-free, and I assure you that this transaction <laughs> would be handled under due inheritance claim procedures, and every necessary legitimate arrangement will be put in place to make you the sole beneficiary of the funds. Please take note that this transaction requires all confidentiality at this stage, and I believe that you are ready to keep this absolutely discreet until after the successful transfer of the funds to your bank account. Shh, don't tell anyone. Also, I have worked out all modalities to complete the transaction successfully. After we transfer all of the funds to you, we shall share the funds in a ratio of 50% for me, 50% for you. Whoa! Reply via my private email address for further clarification, or you can leave a private number where I can reach you. If you send a fax, please include your first and last name, and most importantly, your email address. If your response is positive, stating you are interested to work with me, I will provide you with my private cell phone number so that we could have a confidential conversation. Please also be kind to get back to me if you are not interested. Kind regards, Michael Burlington. So this scammer is really greedy, going yeah. for a 50-50 split. Yeah. Right? Normally we see him going like for 10%, but this guy is, is saying... I'm going to take half the money that I'm scam well, trying to scam you. But but it's with. interesting because it's half of the money that does not exist. Well, of course. So you would think that that would lower the person's incentive. In, right, because if I'm going to get 90% of of a fake 47 million dollars, right. that's better than half of a fake 47 million dollars. <laughs> right, I mean, I get this. What's half of 47 million? Yeah, Let's I mean, see that's 23.5 million. Uh, this isn't worth not, my time. No, no. <laughs> Next letter Next please. offer, please. See, now this yeah. guy, this guy's offering me 90% of of 40 million dollars. That's right. still more than Right. Uh, good day, sir. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, pretty standard stuff here, but it's interesting to me. This is an actual letter sent yeah, out to the Postal Service from Canada. I don't know what's going on with that. Does that make them, it seems, I don't know, that makes it an international crime, right? Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. But uh, at any rate, thanks to uh, our uh, colleague Bennett here for sending that in. That is our catch of the day. Uh, coming up next, Carol Terrio joins us. She's interviewing Craig Silverman from Bun. Feed. She's going to be speaking to him about organizations that do online reputation management. And we are back. Joe, it's always great to have Carol Terrio back on the show. And this week she is speaking with Craig Silverman. He's from BuzzFeed. And they are talking about organizations that do online reputation management. Here's the story. So reputations, they are super important, always have been and always will be. And there's always been fraudsters and sharks out there who try to fool the rest of us. Craig Silverman, a media editor for BuzzFeed News, did a bit of digging on reputation management firms. And what he found out might surprise you and not necessarily in a good way. Craig, really appreciate you making the time at short notice to come on the show. Hey, happy to be here. Perhaps we should start with setting the scene, so to speak. Tell me about Adrian Rubin, the real Adrian Rubin. Yes. So the real Adrian Rubin is a man in his 60s from the Philadelphia area who is currently in prison. And he was someone who ran payday loan scams and was actually involved with some of those kind of most famous evil actor payday loan scammers out there. And he ended up turning on them, becoming a government witness. He also, with his two sons, ran a business 
that was selling worthless credit cards to low-income people. So he basically ended up getting about three years in prison after cooperating with the government a little bit. And so him and his two sons are all currently in different federal prisons right now, incarcerated and not out there and, you know, apparently, you know, not spending much time on the Internet because, of course, they're incarcerated. Right. If I Googled him, I should be able to find all this out. You should be able to. And in some cases, you know, you may find the press release from the attorney's office announcing his sentencing, announcing his plea deal. But what you're also going to find are a bunch of other results for Adrian Rubin and not this guy. You might find an Adrian Rubin who claims to be a, you know, an entrepreneur. You may find other Adrian Rubens with different personas who have their own website, who've done interviews on other websites, who are even in some cases placing sponsored content on uh, reputable publications, you know, interviews with them. And what's happened is that we have, you know, I found at least three fake Adrian Rubin personas that have been created and that are now very effectively actually pushing down these real results of the real Adrian Rubin, replacing them with these kind of innocuous profiles of the Adrian Rubens who don't really exist. So it's it's kind of a bit like PR, isn't it? Public relations where, you know, a firm might have gotten themselves into hot water and then try and put forward more positive news to try and bury the bad, so to speak. But in this case, what you're saying is the personas or the things that they're putting out to try and fix their reputations are all fake or bogus. That's it. The idea here is to swamp search results on Google and elsewhere with these fake personas in the name, and all of these fake Adrian Rubin personas, they were in the Philadelphia area. So anyone searching for Adrian Rubin, Adrian Rubin, Philadelphia, the idea is that they get these fake personas. And if, say, Adrian Rubin comes out of jail in, you know, in two years' time or so, and he's looking to get started in business again, and somebody goes to Google him, well, they're going to find the fake Adrian Rubin, and maybe they don't actually find the criminal history. And so the idea is to kind of suppress the real results for the real person, the negative results, and replace them with these more positive, innocuous results. So if the average person out there doesn't go past the first or second page of Google, they may never know what this person did in the past. Right. And, and, you know, so maybe this is a tough question here, but I understand that it can be super difficult for people who have once been incarcerated to try and find a place to live or a place to work. So if you have no address, you can't get work. If you have no work, you can't get an address. Right. And it seems that reputation management here would be a useful thing to help control the hits on previous not so good stuff that might make people that would offer you a job or a house uneasy. Do you have an issue with the model, the reputation management model, so to speak? No, I mean, I think there are obviously some some good uses for it. And one of the ones people that I spoke to who work in this area that they often cite is, you know, what if you're running a business and you're legitimate and you're running a real business, but you have an interaction with a customer or a partner and it turns sour and that person decides they're just going to leave horrible, negative, false things about you on review sites and on your Facebook page and just, you know, start their own campaign to try and bring you down. Right. And this is something that definitely happens. And in that case, obviously, fighting back, getting those negative reviews removed if you can, making sure that good, quality, accurate results about you are higher than them is totally legitimate and totally normal. And I think there's also an argument to be made, even in the case of, you know, people who've gotten in trouble with the law. Well, you know, if, if it wasn't a major crime, if it's something that's happened far in the past, if you have, you know, spent years of your life building up a new reputation, doing new things, good things, positive things, you know, you should be entitled to have those things be front and center. Um, where it's a problem, for example, with Adrian Rubin is, you know, he's still in prison and this stuff is going on, wiping away what he did 
uh, while he's in prison, presumably so that when he gets out, you know, he's got this clean slate. But when you've committed, you know, huge financial crimes, when you've committed other kinds of, you know, really dastardly things, should you be able to just wipe the slate clean? And this, I think, raises kind of a larger tension that a lot of us have online is so much of information out there is about us. And Google really determines what our reputation is based on what shows up. And you don't really control that. You, um, you know, you can go and live your life. But if somebody out there, you know, writes on a website with a pretty high ranking, something that's, you know, not true about you or really nasty about you, you can't really control that. And there's, there's a certain element here that people should have the ability to push back against stuff that's not true, push back against stuff that's not fair. But the average person doesn't know how to do that. And so that's why these, these consultants exist. Do you think these reputation management cowboys, do you think they're taking a big risk in using fake information to flood the, the news feed? I mean, why wouldn't they take real stuff? Surely he must have done some good things in his life at one point. Maybe that's too much work. Yeah, I mean, there's one of the guys that I spoke to who provides the service and who, in fact, I connected to the Adrian Rubin profiles, uh, even though he wouldn't admit it in any way. <laughs> you know, he, he offers what he calls, you know, alter ego services. As, and he said that on his website, he says like half of his business. I think it's a shortcut, personally. I mean, yes, your reputation should be real things related to actually to you. So to go out there and muddy the waters like this, I think on a core level, it is unethical. And when I spoke to different reputation management experts, some of them said, yep, completely unethical, something I would never do. And then there are other people like like this one guy who was like, yep, it's totally a normal thing. And so there's no real industry rules. There's no real ethical regulations out there or legal regulations that really prevent this. Although it's obviously against Facebook's rules for you to go out and create a fake Facebook account. So them doing this violates the terms of service on Facebook, on Twitter, and on some of these places. Right. But this is happening at a level that they sort of have bigger fish to fry. So these guys are getting away with it. And at the core of it, yeah, I do think it's mm. unethical. I don't think having paying somebody to create a bunch of fake personas to suppress real things you did is, is a good and ethical thing to do. No, and I wonder if it falls under the making false statements legislation in the states, right? Because you're basically just lying. I don't think even the Fifth Amendment protects you or exonerates. I think in, in this case, unless you were using, say, these fake personas to spread libelous things about someone else, the chances of you getting any kind of legal satisfaction out of this is is probably pretty slim. I mean, one... Law enforcement may look at this and say, you know, this is unethical, but are they going to put resources into going after people for doing this? And so really what it comes down to in the end is, are the social media networks and other places that don't allow fake accounts going to make any effort to take these down? And again, I think they're under so much pressure when it comes to, you know, information operations from either, you know, financially oriented actors or state actors that they look at this and see this as a relatively small thing. So, you know, that's good news for the shady reputation experts. I wonder, do you have any advice or did you have, do you have any findings on how to tell, oh, you know what, this reputation management company is not ethical, not good? Because I'm guessing some of them are not sharing their shady practices with their clients. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Some of the questions you could ask is really about what are their rules for taking clients? You know, some of the people I spoke to said they don't work with people who are trying to scrub criminal histories. And that was a blanket rule for them. Others don't seem to have a problem with that. So if you think that's something they shouldn't be doing, you should just ask, you know, mm. who will you not work with? What are your rules around clients? And then the second is, you know, really your tactics and your approach. I think now that we know this persona stuff, this alter ego stuff is out there. If you want to ask someone and say, what is your policy with alter egos? 
uh, without sort of tipping your hand to say that you think it's something that they shouldn't do, maybe they'll answer you and tell you that. So I think getting a sense from them of what their guardrails are and their guidelines are makes a lot of sense. And of course, like with any kind of consultant you might hire, get some references and see what kind of campaigns they've done for other people and see who they're referring you to. And, And I think in a lot of these cases, at least the ones that I wrote about, this stuff was being done with the full knowledge of the client. Hmm. Uh, and the client had sort of signed off on it. And that was sort of their argument to me. It's like, hey, this is something the client knows about that they've approved and they're okay with. And so if you have an unscrupulous client, that unscrupulous client can certainly find some reputation management experts to work with them. So then it's a question of the, the consultant you're working with, have they ever done that is, I guess, what you want to know if it's not something you're going to ask them to do. Yeah. And maybe we can ask other above board reputation management firms to call out the bad eggs in their industry. I think this is one of the things that as, as an industry, they need to kind of look at. Everybody I spoke to, I said, hey, are there standards? Are there ethical guidelines? Are there professional organizations that are trying to encourage good behavior? And the answer to all of those things was no. And so if you are a reputational practitioner, you know, what, what can you do to help improve, you know, ironically, the reputation of your reputation industry so that these bad players aren't the ones out there um, looking and people can't tell the difference between the good from the bad. So I think there's an argument for these consultants themselves to really step up and do something to help consumers and the average person figure out who's good and who's bad. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. Until they start doing that, I feel I have to tell all our listeners, keep your wits about you. You know, you never know. You don't want to be duped by these kind of people. And you don't want to be duped as someone who's looking on Google to try and find information about somebody and be duped by the fake profiles that might be up there. Absolutely. And one simple thing that everybody should learn to do, not just for this context, but for so much online is learn how to do a reverse image search. If that's not something you've done before, go ahead and, and, you know, Google reverse image search. And there's a lot of simple tools out there. It just takes a couple clicks of a mouse in most cases. And that was one of the easy ways that I could see that these, these personas were not real as they were just using stock images for these people. So think about the image, think about the context and go past those first few pages on Google when you're trying to learn about somebody or a company or something. There we go. Craig, this was awesome. Thank you so much for all that advice and information. Awesome. Thank you. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right, Joe, what do you make of all this? That's interesting. I will tell you this. While we were listening to that interview, I went ahead and Googled Adrian Rubin. Mm -hmm. And the real Adrian Rubin that Craig Silverman is talking about here shows up as like the first two or three pages of Google results. Google has his number. Yeah. So (laughs) it it sounds like after this story broke that Google investigated this or did something. I don't know. Maybe just the fact that the story breaking has pushed these other stories to the top. I don't know how this works. Nobody really knows how that works. That's that's part of the problem. One of the links on the first page is a link to one of Craig Silverman's tweets about Adrian Rubin. And it's it's talking about a Dr. Adrian Rubin, who is a female climatologist, obviously to throw you off the track of the real Adrian Rubin hmm. uh, that you might be interested in. But this person doesn't exist. It's a picture from Shutterstock. It's very interesting. Here we are again in the situation where we're having technology that has far outpaced any regulation or any laws that we could possibly write. This is relegated to the field of ethics. And of course, there are differing opinions on what's ethical and what isn't. Well, I was thinking, you know, if we rewind to the good old days, right? <laughs> would there be a problem if I put a fake listing in a phone book? Right. You know, if I put a, a classified ad in there for, you know, Joe Kerrigan, ornithologist, uh, you right. know, is there any problem with that? I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's vastly different because that's kind of temporal, right? 
Yeah. It's it's going to be in a in an issue of a paper and then it's going to be gone. Yeah. Uh, these tend to be a little more long-lasting, I think. Well, yeah. But you have a phone book for a year at least, right? Right, right. right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm trying to think of, of this notion of technology outpacing the law. I guess this stuff just didn't pop up because right. it was a different way. You didn't need to. Yeah. This reminds me of search engine optimization. It, it is a form you know? of search engine optimization. <laughs> and all of the shadiness yeah. that that is associated with that, particularly when all these things first popped up. Right. You know? Yeah. And and the, I, th- I think those whole organizations are shady. And they, you know, I'll get your website to the top of the Google search results. Right. And then this is just the exact same thing, but I'll push any news results about you to the bottom of the Google search results. Yeah. Yeah, trying um, to understand the black magic and voodoo behind right. <laughs> how the algorithms work. And and like I said before, nobody knows how they work, but mm-hmm. people can game them, I guess. Yeah. Reverse image search is a great tool for trying to find these things for now. In the near future, it's going to become irrelevant because to create a fake profile, you will create a fake person. Mm-hmm. Just like the the site, thispersondoesnotexist.com, which right. if you go to that site, every time you reload that page... An AI-generated picture of a person shows up. Yeah. And it's remarkably good. <laughs> you know, sometimes you get them, they look, they look a little weird, but it's, by and large, it's very good. And yeah. that's, that's going to be the end of using reverse image search to find people. Mm-hmm. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. (laughs) 